Well, good morning. Let me wish all of you a warm welcome, both of those who are here in person, uh, those who may be joining us online. Uh, again, hope you are excited about digging into the Word of God again this morning. And I do think there's sort of a sense of excitement, um, you know, about what God is going to say to us this morning, especially sort of after our introduction to our sermon series that we had last week. And with that, if you would join me in turning uh, to the book of Revelation. Uh, we'll actually once again start in chapter 1. Uh, because we heard this letters to the churches, you know, we heard last week Jesus had a message that he wanted uh, these churches in Asia Minor to hear. And in the book of Revelation, there are seven of them. Um, and each one needed a particular sort of word from the Lord. So Jesus sends each of them a letter. And this morning we're going to look at that very first letter to the first church that Jesus writes to the church in Ephesus. Uh, and we have a lot of ground to cover, so we're just going to go jump sort of into the passage. And I'm going to back up just a little bit from the passage I have up there, uh, just to give us some context, to cover a little bit of what we covered last time. Uh, so I'm going to begin reading in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Or this is, again, the Apostle John who's writing. And he said, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last the, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstand, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. In chapter 2, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And he found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Lord, once again, as we open your word, um, 
I just pray that you would give us an appetite for it. Lord, that we would be hungry to hear truth um, spoken to us, relevant truth about our lives, our church, the way that we live, and the relationship that we have with you. And Lord, I pray that as we speak this morning, that Lord, you would be present with us. That Lord, your Holy Spirit would come among us to be the spirit of truth and the teacher of truth. And that Lord, you would open our ears and even more important, open our hearts uh, to hear you speak to us today. And Lord, in hearing you, I pray that our lives would be transformed to the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So last time we met, we saw that the Apostle John had fallen at Jesus' feet as though dead upon sort of seeing the glory of the risen Lord. And I kind of felt like sort of one of those old-timey radio shows in saying that, like last time we were with John, he was lying at the feet of the Savior dead. But, you know, we did kind of leave John on a bit of a cliffhanger. But now our story continues as we come to our passage. And first, our Revelation, chapter 1, it tells us, John says, when I fell at his feet as though dead, it says, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And again, as we talked about last time, I can only imagine that, you know, John seeing Jesus like this was, was, I don't know, equal parts confusing and overwhelming for John. You know, that, that those images of chapter one where his hair is like wool and his eyes are like flame and his feet are like burnished bronze and there's sashes and robes and lampsticks and, you know, stars, oh my. Like, it's just a lot going on. And he falls at Jesus' feet as though dead, and yet... What we're told is that Jesus doesn't leave John, John just lying there in the dirt. We're actually told that Jesus reaches out to him and he touches him and he gives him words of comfort in this moment. Fear not. And Jesus reminds John that he still has a purpose for him, a purpose for his life and that he's going to send a message to these churches that need to hear. And to me, it's just after that overwhelming glory that we saw last week, this is such a tender picture of the love that Jesus has for his people. And Jesus also, after sort of tenderly talking to John there, he also takes a minute just to clarify some of what John has already seen. In verse 20, he says to him, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, he says, the seven stars are the angels to the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So all of this imagery we see, you know, happening in chapter one, it's not just imagery representing the power and the majesty of God that Jesus talked about here. It's also symbolic. You know, John is showing, Jesus is showing John that this is imagery with a purpose. That the stars mean something and that they're the angels and the lampstands mean something because they represent the churches that John is going to write to. 
And that imagery is going to matter as we come to the letters that Jesus writes to the seven churches, which we actually see as we begin uh, looking at our passage in Revelation 2, this first letter, beginning in verse 1, it's introduced in this way to the angel of the churches, uh, church, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. He says, write the words of him who hold the seven stars in his hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstand. You see, Jesus is recalling some of that imagery we saw in chapter one when it, we talked about his glory. He's using that to actually introduce the letters that he's writing to these seven churches in chapters two and three. And it's not just the church in Ephesus. You know, in the letter that Jesus writes to Smyrna in Revelation 2.8, he introduces himself saying, to the words of the first and the last, he who died and came to life. To Pergamum in Revelation 2.12, it's the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. To Thyatira in Romans or Revelations 2 verse 18, it's the words of the Son of God who has eyes like the flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. To Sardis, Revelation 3 1, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven and the seven stars. And so, and on and on it goes like that. Every letter that Jesus writes to these churches begins by reminding those churches about the truth of who Jesus is. Reminding them of his glory. Reminding them that he is Lord and God. Basically, Jesus begins by really defining his relationship with the churches right up front. Because you know what? When Jesus speaks to the church, he's not giving us a suggestion. It's a command. You know, when Jesus wants his church to do something, he doesn't have to hold a meeting. He doesn't have to wait for a quorum and take a vote. When Jesus has a message that he wants the church to hear, our only right response is to listen and to obey. And just so you don't miss it, my favorite part of this passage comes in Revelation 2, 2 verse 1, where Jesus sends this message to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And I... Does that mean that every church has a guardian angel, something like that? No, that's not what that means at all. Uh, what makes me so excited about this is that when Jesus talks to the angel of this church, he's actually talking about the pastor. Uh, the angel is the pastor in the church, and that's kind of exciting for me because I, <laughs> pastor, Jesus calls pastors angels, which is pretty cool. Actually, uh, years ago, um, even before we had kids, I was sitting with Kathy. I was looking at this book, and I saw this, and I like I turned to her and I said, "Bit of smug look on my face, if you know who I am." That's you know, and I said, "Did you know that pastors are angels?" And she looked, you know, she was kind of skeptical. She's like, "Says who?" And I thought I totally had her. I'm like, "Says Jesus." <laughs> she got real quiet for a minute. She just looked at me and it's like. The good kind of angel or the other kind of angel? Like, <laughs> that was the worst. You pop my bubble. But again, that's okay because Jesus says to the angel, when he says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, Jesus, he's, just, he's addressing this letter to the person in the church who'll be speaking this truth to the people. Because the word translated angel there just means, carries the idea of a messenger. Uh, that's what that word angel means in this context. In fact, messenger is actually probably a better translation here to the messenger of the church of Ephesus. So it has nothing to do with, you know, 
heavenly beings, and has nothing to do with the outstanding character of the person. It's not saying pastors are more holier or perfecter than any other member of the church. It's just simply that the pastor was likely the one responsible for proclaiming this truth to his church. The pastor was the messenger uh, that God had appointed for this. And as we turn to the content now of this message, there are actually three things um, that we see even in this letter's introduction that I think are revealed about Jesus Christ that I don't want us to miss because we can miss them if, if we read too fast. And they're going to be pretty quick, but this is what the introduction alone tells me about Jesus. And the first thing is that Jesus cares for his church. Um, notice the image here is one of Jesus holding the stars in his right hand. And the stars, again, we were told were the angels, which we've learned are the pastors or the workers of the church. And remember that old insurance ad, it's like you're in good hands with all state. You know, holding something, that, it's, a, it's an image, holding something in your hands is an image of care. It's this, it's this image of divine security. It's an image of loving comfort. This is really a picture of Christ's sovereign love and protection for the people in his church. And again, as a pastor, I tell you, there's no better place that we can be than safe in the palms, the nail-scarred palms of our Savior. Jesus cares for his people. And the next thing I want you to notice is that Jesus is also present in his churches. Because we're told in verse 1 that he walks among the seven golden lampstands. And again, we're told the lampstands are the churches. So this is, again, a picture of Jesus' continual presence among us as the church. You remember Jesus' promise in Matthew 18, 20, where he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. This verse shows us the truth of his words. And you know, I don't know if we even stop long enough on a regular basis to, to really let that fact sink, to, sink in, that Christ is here right now, that he's in this room. His presence is in this place. And that's an incredible feeling to know that God himself is here because Christ is walking in the midst of his churches. And then finally, one more thing we learn about Jesus, and it comes in the next verse, so Revelation 2, verse 2, because it begins with two simple words where Jesus says, I know. And as we stop there, we need to hear this truth that Christ knows his church. He knows us. He, he knows individual churches and he knows our needs. He knows our deeds. He knows our hurts. He knows our struggles. He knows our hopes. He knows our dreams. Jesus, because he is present with us, he has firsthand knowledge of everything that's going on among us. And he doesn't miss a single thing. And that means that the message that Jesus is about to give to these seven churches is one that's very personal. It's not a form letter. It's not like a bulk email that he's just sending out. These are words that are handcrafted for each church personally. Because Jesus cares for his church. Jesus is present in his church. And Jesus knows his church. And with that in mind, he now turns his attention to one church in particular. The church in Ephesus. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And just to give you a bit of background on Ephesus, um, the city of Ephesus was one of the leading cities 
in the world at that, at that day. Uh, today, you know, it would be a city we'd talk about in the category of like London or Paris or, or New York City. It was a metropolis. It was a center of arts and, and culture. In fact, Ephesus had the largest open-air theater in the entire Roman Empire, seating 25,000 people, as well as, you know, stadiums to hold chariot races and gladiator arenas and all that kind of stuff. And it was a very rich city. It was a port city. And it dealt with massive volumes of trade. It had a booming economy. Basically, it served as sort of a gateway that linked the Roman Empire from east to west. You may have heard the saying, you know, all roads lead to Rome. Well, in Asia Minor, you could equally say all roads led to Ephesus. Uh, that's the kind of city it was. And it was also sort of a, well, I don't even know, wicked city. All kinds of idolatry, all kinds of temples, all kinds of shrines to various gods. Uh, but most of all, it was known as the location to the temple of the Greek goddess Artemis. And even in that day, that temple was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was actually four times the size of the Parthenon in Greece. And that temple was a place of iniquity. It employed hundreds of prostitutes who served as their, as their goddesses to the, to the god. So in a nutshell, Ephesus, well, it probably wasn't all that different from the world we live in today. It was a city focused on materialism and wealth. It was a city full of self-indulgence, a city that glorified both sex and violence. It was a city that, you know, embraced religious tolerance and rejected the idea of absolute truth. You know, you could worship any God. You could go to any temple you wanted. As long as you didn't sort of make a big deal of saying your way was the right way, it was all good. So this wouldn't have been a, a, a real easy place to be a Christian. And yet we know that in this worldly city of Ephesus, there rose up a church that was faithful to the gospel. It was, it was a beacon of truth in a culture of relativism. And in that sense, this church in Ephesus did an amazing job. Uh, as you look at Jesus' own words as he continues in verse 2, he says to this church, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. And you know, I'll be the first to say that I would love to have Jesus say those kind of things about my church. Because even though they were in sort of one of the most worldly cities on earth, Christ says, you guys have worked hard in the service of the gospel. You have held tightly to the doctrine that you were taught. You have stood your ground. And you've not compromised your life towards the culture of your day. And you have tested the teachers among you to make sure they, they were teaching truth and weren't false. In fact, down in verse 6, Jesus says, This you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans were a group of false teachers that had invaded the early church preaching moral compromise. And we'll actually hear more about them in detail when we talk later in the church to Pergamum. Because Pergamum actually fell victim to their teaching. But here in Ephesus, we're told they didn't give in. They didn't water down their beliefs to make it you know, more tolerant for other faith groups. They didn't run and hide their heads in the sand. 
when the world was offended by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and when the world asked them to compromise what they believed and the way they lived, they answered, no way. And you know, again, if we had to admit it on the outside, this looks like an amazing church. This church could, you know, breeze through all those, you know, conferences that churches put on about church growth techniques and all that stuff. In fact, the church in Ephesus, I think, would almost be sort of an ancient relative of our big mega churches today. Because this was the church, I think, that other churches wanted to be. I mean, they literally have a book of the Bible named after them. That's like credit, uh, you know. They, they, we we're told they worked hard, which means they ran ministries and they preached truth and they probably cause had a large attendance. They were probably one of the bigger churches out there at that time. And, you know, all that hard work called, needed a volunteer base. And they even had, you know, like mega churches. They even had superstar pastors. You know, the Apostle Paul spent several years ministering to this church. Later, his disciple Timothy, who also, books of the Bible named after him, took over for him as a pastor. Even the Apostle John is, to, is said to have spent some of his later years in the church of Ephesus. I mean, Ephesus could name drop its pastors, you know, with a list of names that would make other churches jealous. And yet, in spite of all that praise... We are told Jesus finds a flaw, a flaw running through the heart of this church. And unfortunately for this church, it's a flaw that could be fatal. As Jesus says to this very doctrinally faithful church in verse four, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. They've abandoned their first love. And, you know, to me, especially as a pastor, those are words that really hit home. Those are words that really, I think, make you think about what it means to be a successful church. Because, you know, so often as a church, we can focus on the programs and the attendance and the good preaching and teaching and looking at all of our activity and the things that we're doing. And, and we're like, look how much is going on here. It's great. While completely overlooking sometimes matters of the heart. And I think that for many churches, this is actually a far too common problem. And it's very interesting to me that in the book of Revelation, Jesus writes seven letters to churches. And only two of those churches are criticized for having poor doctrine. But far more common in these churches was a lack of spiritual vitality or closeness to the Lord. The problems, I guess I'm saying, the problems for many churches are, are not matters of the head, they're matters of the heart. And the church in Ephesus had let that happen. I mean, they still had their doctrine. They still had their hard work. They still had their commitment to holiness. But somewhere along the line, this church had lost its passion. They'd lost its excitement. They'd lost its love for their Savior. Charles Swindoll writes about this church. He said, the Ephesians were the pit bulls of orthodoxy. Guarding the truth and chasing away false teachers, but in their zeal, they substituted knowledge for knowing. So even though this church had so many good things going for it, this church had really lost the one and only thing that ultimately matters. It had lost its love and its passion for Jesus. And as a church, that is a condition that Christ will not stand for. 
As he says in verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Jesus says, if you can't restore your love for me, I will remove your lampstand. And those are some serious words that Jesus is saying. He's saying, if, if a love for him is not present, it is literally lights out for this church. And here's the lesson I think that hits home for us today, both as a church in general and as believers individually. And that is to put anything ahead of our love for Christ, no matter how noble that anything may be, is something that is completely unacceptable to God. I like the way Eugene Peterson says it, no matter how how highly polished the gold in the lampstand, it cannot outshine the light that is Christ. And sometimes we forget that as a church. Sometimes, you know, we can get so caught up in activity. We can get so caught up in running programs and doing ministries that we actually miss Jesus in the midst of it all. You know, doing things for God is not necessarily the same thing as loving God. And we can't let that happen. As a church, we need to be so careful about guarding our hearts in this area. Because, you know, above all, the Christian life is about loving God. Remember in Matthew 22, when a man comes up to Jesus and he asks him a question, says, what is the greatest commandment? That man's asking Jesus, Jesus, what is it that God finds most important? Jesus, what is required of us before any other thing? Jesus, what in in the life of faith is the one absolute essential? And you probably remember Jesus' answer because he replied in verse 37, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. What is it that God desires from us more than anything else? Jesus says it's love. God doesn't necessarily need more activity. He doesn't need more programs. He doesn't need us to work harder. And it's not that any of those things are bad things. But what God wants from us more than anything else is for us to love him. He wants a relationship. He wants to be real in our lives. He wants to be personal. And yet the danger, as our passage points out to us, is that it's so easy to forget that. It's so easy to just be busy and just start going through the motions as churches and even as individuals in our life of faith. And I know even as a pastor, like I'm paid to do this, but I know there are times in my life I can forget about what faith is all about. There's times when I read my Bible just so I can check off the checklist and say I did it. There's times when I pray just because I know what's expected of me. There are times when my quiet time turns into nap time. And if I were to stop and just really be honest in those moments, I would realize that those are times when my faith has grown cold. Which can happen in any relationship if you let it. You know, any relationship, this can happen. You know, you get two people who are like passionately in love with one another and 10 years later they're arguing about whose turn it is to take out the garbage. And I think the, the number one reason that happens in any relationship is that we don't, we just don't take the time. Because more than anything else, relationships take time. But time is something we have in very short supply in our world today. 
Now, I bet you if you were to ask anybody that you know, how are you doing? If they're honest, they'll probably say, I'm busy. I once heard it said, to most of us, our lives feel like a movie. We arrived at 20 minutes late. The action is well underway, and we don't have a clue what's going on. And we're always in a rush. We're always in a hurry. We always have something else we need to do. But hectic lives lead to hectic faith, which leads to hectic churches that miss the point. And all of our busyness and all of our strivings and all our goings and all of our workings just become another distraction that steals our hearts away from our first love. But the good news, and we need to hear this, the good news that each one of us needs to hear is that it doesn't have to be that way. And if your life of faith has sort of taken a turn in that direction, Jesus gives us three steps in this passage that we need to take to get back on course. And this is a truth maybe some of us need to hear this morning. These are three steps to rekindle our first love for Christ. And the first is to remember. He says in verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Jesus tells us to remember, go back in your mind to that time when you first believed to remember. Remember what it was like to be broken by your sin and to experience the grace of Christ firsthand. Remember that moment in your life when you came to understand that Jesus died on the cross for you, that his blood was spilled for you, and that let his mercy wash over you like a wave when you understand that again. Remember the passion that you had as a new believer. You know, remember the joy you had, you know, as a, as a young Christian, when you dug into the word and the scripture for the first time. Remember the excitement that you used to experiencing, learning about God and growing closer to him every day. Remember the day you were baptized and you, you got to stand before the world to declare your allegiance to, to, to Jesus Christ. Remember the grace that set you free. Jesus says, remember. Remember how it used to be before things grew cold. Remember the passion that, that once burned so bright. Remember your first love so, so that you can see just how far you have fallen. You can see the distance in your life that you now have from Christ. Remember. And then step two, Jesus says, repent. Repent. Verse 5, repent and do the works you did at first. Now, there's people who think repentance is a dirty word or a judgmental word, but repentance is something essential to our faith. In its most basic sense, the word repent means simply to make a change. It's a change in direction. It's a turning around, and that can be a good thing. If you're driving in your car straight off a cliff, turning is a good idea. And that's what Jesus is telling us to do. If you're off course in your relationship with him, pick a new direction that will take you back to the place you want to be. And you know, if, you're, if this message is speaking to you today, then the time may have come to admit something has gone wrong in your life of faith. The time may come for you to admit you feel unsatisfied or emotionless in your faith. The time may have come to admit you've lost a passion. And that the lifestyle that you've chosen is just, it's drawing you away from your love for God. 
It's time to be honest about the state of your heart and it's time to do something about it. So repent and make the decision to turn your life around because repentance is not just admitting that something's wrong. It's about making changes in your life to make it right. Which brings us to the final step this morning. As verse 5 says, and do the works you did at first. I'll give you another R word this morning, return. Jesus says, return to doing those things you first did. You know, return to that place, you know, that simplicity of your faith. When you first believed and you were sort of unburdened by appointments and time pressures and demands on your time, return to doing the things that you used to do back when your walk with God was vibrant and your passion was still warm. And, you know, most of us, I think, know what those things are. You know, to have a relationship with Jesus, we need to be reading our Bibles daily. You know, with an expectation that God's word will speak into our lives. We need to be spending time in prayer. You know, just being still before the Lord. We need to be going to church. You know, with the attitude that we are meeting God as we're in this place. We need to be fellowshipping with other believers, sharing our lives sharing our burdens and sharing our testimonies with others. And we need to take time just to sit at our Savior's feet and worship him. You know, to live each day in awe of God so that we can recapture that love we once had when we first believed. Remember, repent, and return to do the things you did at first. That's really a recipe for restoring the love and the passion for Jesus in our lives. And in all of this, I think it's important for us to remember that we're not alone. Because in this, Jesus himself is with us. And when we respond to him, he is faithful to respond to us. And that's what the last verse is about, verse 7. As Jesus ends this letter with this promise, saying, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, every one of these seven letters that Jesus writes to these churches, it ends with a promise of eternal life to those who overcome. But each letter uses a different image to express that promise. And here, the image that Jesus gives is the tree of life and the paradise of God. And that's an image of restoration. It is a reminder that paradise lost is a paradise that can be restored, which is God's desire for each and every one of us to restore that relationship that was broken. And for me, this is a promise of hope because it means that no matter how far off the mark we feel our lives have become, no matter how bad things seem, no matter how off track our faith feels in this moment, God's message is that we can still come back and we can still have that relationship restored. It's not just for a moment. It's not just for a season. It's for all eternity. Because the words of Jeremiah 29, 13 are true. As God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. So today as I close, I just want to ask you the question. Do you love Jesus? Is he the first love in your life? And really, only you have the answer to that. Only you know where your passions lie. Only you know where your heart stands this morning. 
Only do you know the state of your soul before the Lord in this moment. But the good news is that Christ is calling every one of us to be closer to him. He's calling all of us back to him, calling us to rekindle that relationship of love with him, calling us to a place of intimacy with the Almighty. If you will take time to remember and to return and to repent, then Christ will be faithful to restore that which was lost. So let me encourage you just to do all that you can to live this out in your life or to be punny, to love it out in your life. Don't let your love grow cold. Don't let your passion diminish. Don't let this truth fade. Let it change how you live. Let it define your choices. Let it overwhelm your hearts. And let there never be a moment when Jesus and his salvation is not your greatest joy. Because in all the universe, nothing even comes close to the joy of having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that should be our goal. So light the fire of your first love again and rekindle the flame of passion for God in your heart. Let's pray. Father God, what a privilege it is to be your people. And Lord, we recognize that it is by your grace, by your love, by your mercy that we are your church and that you have made us your own calling us to a place of intimate relationship with you. And Lord, we pray that, Lord, you would be Lord and God in our lives, that, Lord, our hearts would be surrendered to you and that our lives would serve you. But, Lord, we confess that, just like the Ephesians, Lord, there are times when our faith grows cold. There's times when our activity is actually becomes a distraction in our pursuit of you. There's times when the busyness of our lives keeps us from just being still before your presence and pursuing you with all of our hearts. And the world we live in, Lord, we know it doesn't help. Uh, most of us, honestly, we have more to do than we know how to get done. But Lord, I pray that, that we would make the time in our lives. And Lord, if there's anyone here in this place who's feeling distant from you, I pray that they would hear the call of you in this moment, a call back to yourself, a call back to a deep and passionate and vibrant relationship with you. And that, Lord, they would remember and they would repent and they would return to do those things that we did when our faith was still a flame. And Lord, we hold the promise that, Lord, you will restore that which was lost. And I pray that, Lord, we would just live with that passion, that our one desire, that our highest goal, that our true priority in all that we do would be our pursuit of our relationship with you. And that, Lord, that would be something that defines all of our days, both as individual Christians and as a church. And we ask this and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.